I was sitting on a log one day, having a quiet think, when suddenly I noticed I was being watched by a skink. Now, skinks, of course, are lizards and they're usually shy, but this one popped its head up and looked me in the eye, then it skidded straight towards me in a skinky sort of way. Imagine my amazement when it stopped and said, G'day! It said it rather quietly, as this skink was pretty small, but what I found so surprising was that he could talk at all. Still, it pays to be polite, or so my mother seems to think. So I replied, G'day yourself, to this tiny little skink. You wouldn't mind a quiet word, said my scary little mate. Uh, no, I said, of course not. It seemed to hesitate. I don't often chat with humans. I don't often chat with skinks. I didn't think they chatted. That's what everybody thinks. There, the conversation paused, but then the lizard said, Next time you're cold, I wonder, could you wear a coat instead? What? I said. I had no clue to what it was on about. Instead of burning firewood, the lizard tried to shout. What's wrong with burning firewood? It's better than being cold. But it isn't wood for burning, the lizard seemed to scold. Those logs that lie upon the ground are shelter, home and larder. When people pick them up and make survival, they're much harder. A hollow log that takes at least a century to form is destroyed in 20 minutes, and a coat could keep you warm. We need those logs to bask on and to shelter from the rain. Surely putting on a coat's not that much of a pain. I gazed down at the little skink, and he gazed up at me. We both wanted to be safe at home and shared a destiny. You've got a point, I told him. I'll try to spread the word. Just ask your friends how they'd like to be eaten by a bird. Okay, I get the message. Just leave it up to me. And so I left that little lizard on the fallen tree. And now I've told this lizard's tale. I hope you see the good of fallen trees as habitat and not as firewood. Welcome back. You're listening to In-Situ Science, where each episode you meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is really like. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by not one, but two very special guests. You've already heard the dulcet tones of one of them. It is, of course, Alexander and Jane Dudley. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, James. Thanks so much. Thank you, James. No worries. I should say thank you for, for having me here in your, your delightful home. I'm out here in Kulatai. Where am I? <laughs> How do I good, get home? Good, good question. Good question. <laughs> You're pretty Alex? much in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And uh, Kulatai is actually at a very narrow section of the Brigalow Belt South bioregion. Sandwiched between the Nandua and the Darling River Iron Plains bioregion, which is why I decided to live here because there's all sorts of wonderful creatures that live around here. The but that doesn't help James get home. No. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I head roughly east, I'll go, yeah, go, go, go southeast okay. if you want to get to Armadale. Yeah, <laughs> it'll take you probably a couple of hours. Yeah. Did you notice the cats on our? signs as you're coming into town no oh there are cats on our town our town oh, signs those black shapes on the mm. town signs oh. for the mythical kulatai panther you got one of those too yeah yeah apparently apparently, apparently. i've yeah. set out many camera traps over a long period of time and surprisingly i've never found one no. <laughs> <laughs> well there's, there's still time no. <laughs> but i think that's what kulatai is famous for Yes. yes, and and a very invasive grass called, surprisingly enough, Kulatai grass, which was originally <laughs> released, here. <laughs> released here from South Africa and uh, threatens to turn pretty much the whole of Australia into a paddock. 
Okay. Is this a bit like is a buffalo grass that's taken yeah. out of the desert? Yeah, it's a bit like buffalo grass. So it's a, a, a very high calorific but low nutrient grass that burns like the clappers and grows right up to big old hollow bearing trees. So, All right, and nothing eats it <clears throat> like it's supposed well, to? Well, cows, cows can eat it, but they do need feed supplements. So the mm. uh, local feed supplement business does very well out of Kulatai grass. <laughs> <laughs> but Kulatai also has a huge biodiversity of lizards, reptiles and amphibians, which is basically why you bought this house, right? Yes, pretty much. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, of all the places in Australia, and you've seen lots of them, I have. You, you've picked Kualatai. Well, when, in back, way back in 2001, I was working summers in Tasmania as a discovery ranger, and I was working winters in Kakadu as an interpretation of okay. the <laughs> And on the shoulder season, I was doing wildlife surveys as a contractor for Parks and Wildlife in New South Wales and I was actually doing a fauna survey just down the road at a little place called Aracola Nature Reserve and I was thinking it was April so mm. the climate was mild like it was today there were nice little fluffy clouds <laughs> scudding across the sky and I just found uh, the the first record of um, a little velvet gecko called Amelosia. It was at that time we figured it was Rhombifera but we now think it might be Jacobe but in any case it was yeah. the first uh, record of this species from New South Wales, and I was like, "Wow, this is this is a pretty cool spot." Mm. And I found out that this place was for sale uh, for at the time it's twenty two thousand dollars. Jeez, that's <laughs> alright. So I bought it on my credit card and paid it off ten minutes later, <laughs> and destroyed my credit card. Yeah, and um, now I'm stuck here. <laughs> and was it a credit card with a great point system? You didn't get a couple of thousand frigging flyer miles? No, well, no, I never really looked into that. No, but, it, but it, you did get a $5,000 oh, first hand yeah, grant, yeah, so yeah, this well, house is $17,000. Yeah, 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 on exactly. an eight and a half. Yeah, yeah. Come on. How long ago was that again? 2001. It doesn't seem like that long ago. No, no, no. it doesn't seem like that long ago. But, Don't um, suppose you know what property prices are in Call of Duty? Oh, though. they've gone up. Yeah, they've best. gone up a bit, but, you know, still. I mean, if I sold this place in Kualatai, I wouldn't be able to afford to buy anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't buy it as an investment property unless, um, you know, you're investing in your mental health because the the advantage of actually owning your house, which is something that most people in the world nowadays, well, certainly in Australia, probably didn't, never experience, is mm. that uh, I work when I want where I want, mm. for whom I want. Yeah. And that's a, that's a huge plus. Yeah. Yeah, and I think... I don't think Faunaverse would happen if we, no, one, had kids and two, had, you know, a mortgage. <laughs> well, so, yeah, it's a lot of freedom. Yeah. Well, well, we'll talk about work life later, but let's let's talk about this Faunaverse. So we heard a poem. To, what was it entitled? Uh, the Lizard's Tale. The Lizard's Tale. And, and where, where can people read this poem, Alex? Well... Uh, fortunately, I, I developed a relationship with this beautiful woman, Jane, who I've since married, and she <laughs> kicked me into... Who's, who's the same woman we're talking to? Yes, no, that's, we should. That, that's it's me. Great. I'm here. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> it's Jane. Right here. <laughs> and she kicked the can along the road and basically kicked me up the backside, and we produced um, this wonderful book called Forniverse, Australian Wildlife in Poetry. Mm-hmm. That features, and I think, twenty-three features. poems about Australia. Some, some of Australia's interesting and unique animals. Some are well known, and some are less well known. Mm. So, for example, I've got poems in here about uh, assassin bugs and 
uh, planner gales, which people have never heard of, but I've also got cassowaries and mm. um, tiger snakes and death adders. And it's a little bit reptile heavy, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it is a little bit reptile heavy. We've remembered that in our second book, which is a, a Tasmanian themed Faunaverse book. But, but Alex has been writing poetry. You, you've been using poetry in your natural history interpretation. Since for I, decades. Since right? I started working as a discovery ranger way back mm. in 1991, I've been using poetry as a means of communication. And I, I grew up um, with, you know, A.A. Milne's Christopher Robin and things like that. And I, I think that really helped me learn to read as a, as a kid. Mm. And one of the activities that I used to do as a, a discovery ranger is um, bedtime stories. And I found it incredibly difficult to find stories that were... Uh, accurate about Australian wildlife that mm. actually contained factual information that actually taught a little bit about the ecology of and the animals. And were fun to listen to. And were fun wow. to listen to <laughs> as well. So there's, there's a lot of books out there about Australian animals mm. that are aimed at kids. Um, and a lot of them are really dry, but there's also a lot of books out there um, that, like Possum Magic, for example. It's Nothing. a great beloved book. But it teaches you to feed possums lentils. <laughs> oh, controversial opinions here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Taking a stab at possum magic. <laughs> but I mean, no, I love that book. But it could have been written about a mouse. It, well, it originally wasn't mm. about possums. Yeah, so, I don't remember what the animal was, but yeah, I think it was a mouse actually. Yeah, but, but so yeah, trying to trying to you know teach people a little bit about wildlife in an engaging way was mm. something that. And I think poetry is a really great tool for that because you can you can imbue a lot of factual information in a narrative in a in a, in a poem. That's true. So you're learning without even realizing it. Well, I say the same thing about music as well. It's why everyone can remember the alphabet because it's part of a song. Yeah. If you had to remember 26 letters in a row, it wouldn't happen. But but that's why I mean I've started turning our poetry into songs. Well, I've discovered that. Poetry doesn't really translate well into music, but I'm going to start writing songs specifically about wildlife. But I want the, I want, I want the message and the the to be, almost be irrelevant. I know you know you've got to make the music cool mm. and catchy, etc. But yeah. but I think we're like, I think music would be a good way to 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 educate people about even basic ecological principles as well as specific animals. And it's a shame. Things. It's a shame we don't really use music as a well, I guess we use it for kids. We use it as a teaching tool. Yeah, we do. To get well, I mean, basic ideas across, right? One of the the things that that uh, I find intriguing is, uh, you know, I worked when I was working in Kakadu, is learning about song lines, and that's mm. all about music. It's yeah. about you know music as a monomic device and being used to navigate your way across thousands of kilometres of landscape. Mm. So yeah, I mean, music as a as a teaching tool cannot be underestimated, I believe. Well, and I have had feedback that my Milena the Marchfly song gets stuck in people's heads for days, and <laughs> whether that's good or bad. But and you can listen to Milena the Marchfly if you visit our website at fauniverse.com. <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done. But if, for your future music plans, I'm surprised to hear you, you say that poetry doesn't really translate well into music. I think it's because, I mean... With, That's with, the way you write. Well, when I write a song, I come up with the riff or the music first and then lyrics, mm. then fit the lyrics into it, whereas a poem already has a specific metre, is that mm. the right word, metre to it, mm. and 
there, I mean, songs usually follow verse, chorus, yeah. verse kind of layout, and poem, poetry doesn't have that. Um, but I think it's just the way that I work is I write the music first, and then and then I write the lyrics later. But we'll see. Yeah. I have I have turned a few of our poems into songs, so I don't know how great the kind of production quality is <laughs> so far, but I'm getting there. It's, it's one so of the projects I want to do. Do you have a, a, a style? Do you, do you care about meters and structures? Oh, that's oh, definitely... I'm, I'm, very, yeah. I'm very fussy It's not just that. boat rhymes with float. No, there is definitely a lot more to it than that. So, <laughs> so you want to you make sure that um, the, the, the meter, if you like, follows the syllables, so your syllables are all aligned as well, because... Mm. There is, there's a lot of poetry out there, and a lot of it, like, I mean, what, what we're doing is, is basically verse, and there are people who are, I guess, poetry, you know, buffs who mm. look down on verse in a way. But if you're going to write verse, you've got to make sure that you have everything flow really well, because otherwise it just jars on the ear. And nobody likes having jars on their ears. <laughs> <laughs> but and it, and it and it I think it sounds simple. But for me, I mean, you've been writing poetry for decades. I'm really new to this. And the first poem I wrote was about Burton's legless lizards because they're cool. They're very cool. <laughs> and I wanted to learn about them. And basically, I just looked at all the information, all the research, all the observations, everything that we know about them, and listed that. And was like, all right, the goal of this poem is to try and imbue as many of these facts into a into into a poem. And I, I think I pulled it off pretty well. You did. But <laughs> I did. There, there, were, there were actually one of the few times we've actually... I had an argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, because he's very... He, you know, he's like, meter matters and, and uh, etc. Yeah. But when he criticised, it was like... It's like he told me my baby was ugly. <laughs> Basically, and I didn't handle criticism. <laughs> I'm better at it now, but it was like... I spent probably two days writing this poem, researching. Okay, be the Burton's legless lizard. What do I want to say about it? Well, yeah. outside of these books, your poetry has travelled wide and far. Has it? I have a story. So, a while ago, <laughs> I, I won a copy of one of your books. You did? You were our 500th <laughs> like on our Facebook, Facebook page. page. I didn't even know that you were running a thing. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I got a book out of it. And I said to my partner, oh, I got a, a free book from these guys. And I showed him the book, and she looked at the name and said, That looks really familiar. And she got her phone, she went back through a bunch of photos. For her PhD, she travelled out to a property called New Haven. Oh! A property, <laughs> and had a photo of a poem on the back of the toilet door. Which, which poem I was think it, was Jane? the one the, you the, read. The, the lizard's tale, yeah. Was it? Yes. Yeah. And New Haven. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And so she saw that poem every day for months when she was at Joanne. Nice. And it remembered your name. Well, wow, that's, that's, that's really amazing. cool. Yeah. And uh, so do you have a wood fired pair? <laughs> we do have a wood fire in We live in Armadale. No, I failed. <laughs> but you do live no, in Armadale. You can sustainably source firewood. Yeah, you can. But it just for him, he, him, uh, uh, a campfire, it, it just, it's just equals dead lizards, burning lizards <laughs> to him. Well, I mean, Alex, it's I also because I, I worked a long time as a ranger in Tasmania, and yeah. uh, un- unusually in Tasmania, uh, they discourage campfires. Yeah. And in fact, nowadays, in, in just about all the national parks in Tasmania, campfires are illegal. Mm. And it's because of the environmental impacts of browsing, yeah. um, to collect kindling and pulling wood and things like that. And all, all these logs on the ground, it's not just the things that live in the logs 
at any one time. It's the fact that animals will use logs not only as cover when they're going from point A to point B, mm. um, well, the log is point B and then they go on to point C. If you take that log away, suddenly they've got to go a lot further. Mm. But logs also provide an elevated perch for lizards to sit on so they can, you know, they've increased their visual horizon. Um, the, a lizard can move quietly along the log. It's rustling through leaf mm. litter. And if something does turn up, it can bang immediately duck behind the wood. Yeah. And so logs on the ground, uh, you know, especially where you've got an environment like around here, you know, the environment's dominated by open woodland. And so you've got very little ground club cover at all. The logs are it. Mm. And contrary to popular opinion, they're not fuel, you know, for bush raging. Oh, I've got, got to get rid of those logs because they're you know, mm. going to set the landscape on fire. Most of the, the fuel that actually carries a fire forward is thinner than your finger. It's the elevated sticks and things like that. Mm. Logs on the ground for a cooler fire will actually provide protection for, for reptiles. But the, the work of um, John Hunter and Peter Croft unfortunately demonstrated that once the logs are burnt, reptiles won't don't, use them. Yeah, uh-huh. don't, don't like using them mm. anymore. So just having logs on the ground in the landscape increases your biodiversity yeah. very much and people picking them up and just seeing them as firewood is a real serious issue for not just lizards but dunnarts and antichinuses and all sorts of creatures like that but we have had feedback from readers who write to us and like oh we love that poem and we don't collect firewood we don't yeah. collect wood around our property anymore for that's true uh, I have had parents come up to me and say, <laughs> Damn you, since we read that poem to our children, we can't have fires anymore. <laughs> I think you say you can't have fires, it's just you've got to... Yeah, you got to know where your wood comes yeah, from. Yeah, you got to know where your wood comes from. Well, I was very proud this year we had to fell a couple of trees in the backyard that were dead and they're non-natives, so I chopped them all up for firewood. Oh, that's and nice. And I felt very... I think... It's going to last us the winter. Good. I uh, hope so. Yeah. You know there's these devices called jumpers. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to convince people to not have fires. There's, I, some, I, there's some evolutionary it's, it's, it's comfort. Primal. Uh, it's yeah. a primal it, thing it about sitting primal around thing. a campfire. And even, even I find, you know, like, if there's a fire going, I'll be staring into it like everybody that's, else. That's yeah. where I shine as a musician. I'm a campfire musician. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, that, that's... Yeah. That's true. <laughs> and then for us, uh, we, as soon as we moved to Armadale, we bought a big dog, so we've got to have a fireplace for the dog to lay in front of the <laughs> Hang on. It's the Doesn't whole... the dog replace the fireplace? <laughs> you, you just had <laughs> the dog some, on you. Something. He's a big dog. Uh, he's a, he's dog. a very good source of heat. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so you've been writing this poetry for years. What made you take that big step to put it into a book and put it out there for the world to see. Well, that, that, was, <laughs> that was me. And actually, congratulations on the recent nuptials too, guys. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it took us a while to get around there. But, uh, well, we were, waiting, we were waiting for same-sex marriage because I didn't really believe in marriage until mm. that was passed. And yeah, we've when got, it didn't, we've so got we're, waiting, we're waiting for that, and now it's... I actually know lots of people that have that same story. Then I just got, oh, great, thanks, we can do this now. (laughs) That's right. Otherwise, it's a bit of a slap in the face to a lot of people. But I love that that when when I walked into the conservatory where we got married, I didn't have a bouquet. I carried a replica of the frog that we met through. We met through a frog. 
What's the story? So the story is, <laughs> I was uh, I was living on a biodynamic permaculture farm in the Hunter Valley, working in a market garden, which was very cool. And I kept finding all these frogs in my raincoat because, <laughs> as I later found out, ra- raincoats are pretty good. Places for frogs to be. They're moist and warm and sheltered and everything. Mm-hmm. But they're mostly what I thought. I think they were green tree frogs, but I think there were other species now that I know a bit more about frogs. Yeah, phallics. And then one day, I, I put my arm through the coat and I pulled out this frog I'd never seen before that was brown and it had a cross through its eye and it had green spots that literally shimmered like emeralds in the sunlight. I'm like, <gasps> this is a magic frog. I want to know about this frog. This frog is rare. I bet you it's rare. <laughs> And I, and I, and I didn't have a clue how to identify a frog. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> and my Google search of magical frog that shimmers like emeralds in the sunlight came up with nothing. <laughs> and then I remember that my sister had a friend who was a herpetologist. And I figured, ah, oh, this guy will know about this frog. So I found him on Facebook and sent him a photo of the frog. And of course, I got up her because she was holding it in her bed. Yes, hand. the first comment was, "Well, you shouldn't be handling frogs." <laughs> so I got in trouble for handling the frogs. But then, and I, I soon learnt it was one of the most common species in Eastern Australia, the Latoria perini. Perini tree frog, yes. <laughs> but I stand by that it's still they a magical are frog. A magically shimmering little. Had you thing seen there. the shimmering? Yeah, I mean, you got to see with the right light. I think you've yes. spot them at night and stuff, and they the little green spots. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But during the day, it's it it's like a jewel. It was, yeah. So anyway, so my interest in the frog quickly turned into the interest in the man, and vice versa. And so he didn't turn you off by having a no, surprisingly no, enough. <laughs> and and like the the thing was that, that within three days, Jane said, "Okay, I'm going to come up to Coolatai to to see you." Seven hour drive. So, and then because you know internet romance you're like is this real or <laughs> oh so it's yeah. within three days you're like oh yeah it, was, this... it, was, it happened really really quickly like okay. seriously if it was a friend of mine saying oh, I've met this amazing woman and we're going to spend the rest of our lives together how long have you known her a week I'd be like you're insane <laughs> <laughs> well and then I had the element of am I actually insane right now because I have bipolar disorder and I had <laughs> I had jumped into relationships before but anyway five and a half years later we're still together but finding that frog and meeting you was the beginning of my education or revelation of just how uneducated and ignorant I was and basically about Australian fauna okay. in general and yeah you know ecological, principles. ecological principles and so the books came about over a, a few years really but it was really at the trip to Cape York Alex took us on his trip to Cape York and we met all these amazing animals and every day it was like meeting well the first few years it was every every time we went in the bush I met a, a creature I'd never even heard of before so it was a constant state of what mm. what this is what is this what um, but when the trip to North Queensland kind of lit a fire under me I think it was when you, we wanted to go to Melanda to photograph tree kangaroos I'm like wait 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 we've got, <laughs> what do you mean we've got kangaroos that live in trees yeah tree, what I had no idea I was 32 mm. and I had no idea they had tree species kangaroos. of macropods that live in trees anyway the best place to photograph is where your cup of tea actually came from is it the Narada oh. tea estate 
there's like a there's a there's a line of trees and there's quite a few individuals that live in the trees and it's the best place to get a photograph and that is cool but also really disturbing because it shows that their habitat is so fragmented mm. that that you know they live in the places where it's perfect like it's great for farming and so yeah. land clearing has greatly contributed to the you know decline and i learned that they were endangered and i was like how can i be 32 and not one not know that this species existed and two if i had not met alex i could potentially have gone through my whole life and not knowing that these species were endangered and potentially they would go endangered and i would not know they even existed and then i started thinking well what species have are endangered or have gone extinct mm. that I've never, you know, never heard of, and then I read about the Christmas Island pipistrelle, etc. But anyway, <laughs> so that trip kind of it it disturbed me enough to go, wow, I represent. I feel like I represent the average Australian, and if I represent the average Australian, the average Australian doesn't know anything mm. about Australian about ecology, and that's concerning. And I'm, but I thought, what what can I do? I'm a. I mean, you obviously had a. a interest in related stuff if you're living on a biodynamic farm well I had I had an well the, I lived on that farm as basically rehabilitation I had okay. spent two years really sick from bipolar disorder I was in mm. and out of hospital you know I tried to commit suicide a few times and and the living on the farm was trying to rehabilitate myself to get to okay. a point where I didn't want to die didn't want to die <laughs> Basically, but you know, I had an interest in wildlife, but I think be- because you hadn't made the deep dive. No, well, I you yeah. know meeting Alex, so I got to spend every day with the zoologist, and <laughs> and it was Poor just thing. it was just a daily re- revelation of awe of just how amazing this country is and the biodiversity that exists, and it's, it's you don't have to take two two steps out of your door, and there's life. Mm. And that's cool. And I'm guessing Alex has found better ways of teaching than yelling at you for doing something wrong. Is he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I've got to say that uh, when when we uh, when we go out uh, spotlighting, it was a very short period of time before Jane got her own with spotlighting, and mm. she's uh, well. At the beginning, it was like, "What is this sorcery? How did he see that spider fifty meters away, or that frog, or gecko?" Or... Yeah. <laughs> and then I learned about eye shine and how to actually pick it up and distinguish between a wolf spider's eye shine and gecko eye shine. And, and now you're and... very, very good. I'm really good. <laughs> <laughs> and was the poetry a teaching tool for Jane then? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Mm. No, I think I just talked to her a lot. To be <laughs> no, well, I mean, uh, you know, you're you're not just a zoologist by profession. That's who you are. Like, there is no distinction between your work and pleasure. That's true. It's it's uh, you know, not a day goes by where it's like, oh, let's go somewhere and look for wildlife and take photographs. Yeah. Well, I even asked up today. You're right, taking photos of something. Yeah, and so when I, when I asked, I was like, so when you go off to do your wildlife surveys, does, does it feel like work? Like, no, it's <laughs> not really. It's no, well, it, feel, it feels like work if I'm working with other people in a lot of cases because, of course, you've got to, you know, I mean, there's a difference between looking for wildlife for fun and looking for yes, wildlife for work. You've yeah. got to constrain yourself to a particular habitat time. Mm. You can't just go wandering off. You've got to keep an eye on the time. You've got to be absolutely diligent with all your mm. record keeping yes. and all that yes. sort of thing. But it's still a tremendous amount of fun. Yes, but, you know, like we go into the bush and it's like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, there's a new species. Of, you, know, you see a, whatever species, and you sit there and get your GPS out, and you're recording yeah, data all the time, even in your time off. Yeah, 
Basically, I think field scientists experience, they think they're going to spend so much time out in the bush seeing all this cool stuff, but once you're out there and you've actually got data you need to collect and things you need to do, it's kind of almost a missed opportunity. Yeah. Because if you don't get to just look and observe and things like that, then it's, yeah. But I think that's what's really interesting about doing fauna survey work. What I've noticed in in our paddock, so our paddock is a highly observed <laughs> bit of landscape we've been out there every day and just just for clarification our, our paddock is is um that whole block of that i that i own is about one and a quarter acres which is about half a hectare mm. and um it, well, it used to be just complete farm farmland it was great completely grazed down yeah. i moved here it was all cooler tie grass this horrible invasive grass and uh, I've fenced it off and tried to keep cattle and things like that from coming on. And over time, it's actually all these natives have started to come up, and the mm. cooler type grass is actually disappearing. Oh, really? And you put tin and, and tiles everywhere. Yeah, that's which right. is the, the, the natives think I'm, I'm breeding, breeding snakes, snakes but, but it's pretty. <laughs> rare. They do, but it's pretty rare to see snakes. But but what I'm like, how long had you lived here before you turned up a tile and saw a plenigale? Yeah, that was 15 years. And, I, and yeah, yeah, 15 so, years I was here. And I was looking under bits like of Like every day, James. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> so there's, there's definitely no such thing as a comprehensive fauna survey. There are, there are species that... I've been here now for 18 years, 19 years. And there are definitely species here that I've only ever seen one of. Okay, yeah. example. Only four or five days, days ago, we saw koalas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's great. Just basically, <laughs> from the backyard, we saw two. In, we saw two within the space of half an hour after not only seeing one in eighteen years. Oh. So that's pretty special. It's a little sh- glimmer of hope. On yeah, it, is, it, is, it is a little well, glimmer of hope. I'm absolutely surprised. I was, yeah, I don't know how they because the you know a lot of trees are dying. Yeah. And 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 I know I do know that trees when it get when they get to a certain heat or temperature, the moisture is ex- like pull back into the trunk mm. yeah so yeah it's um yeah the, the trees are really doing it hard with this drought here but there's other things like steindachnus geckos um i've seen one of those short-footed burrowing frog i've seen one of those um i've seen two blind snakes and they were both under the same rock on the same day <laughs> um so yeah i don't think people realize how biodiverse this region is yeah because but but, you know, unless you have an interest... You wouldn't really know. And getting out there and mm. being in the bush, then you wouldn't, really wouldn't know. And it's I not- think that's partly why kind of the motivation for writing these books. It's For me, it was, it was just... Um, hopefully to inspire a connection to nature. Mm. And to for, for children and adults like to go, wow, this is a cool animal. Where do, oh, look where they live. Oh, that's near us. Or let's, let's go outside and explore and see what's around. Yeah, I think I think that that because without a connection to nature, how can you expect people to care mm-hmm. about and I, th- the I think environment? That's, that's the biggest challenge we're facing at the moment. I think is kids are spending a lot of time on their devices. People are more urbanised, and even here in, in the village of Kulatai, there are children. There are apparently we see them walk, <laughs> we see them walk to the bus stop and back home, but I've never seen them on bikes. We don't mm. we don't see them in the bush. Yeah, and like there's so much cool stuff out there. Like it's, yeah. you know, and even the small things. Like one of the things that I really enjoy about doing the school safaris is getting kids 
just out of the classroom and just wandering around and looking for small insects. Yeah, because you don't, you don't even have to... It's not about all the, the big, big, sexy, like, furry animals. Like, invertebrates are cool. Mm. <laughs> They're yeah. really great, interesting. It's a great organisation I keep hearing about, and I, I want to reach out and get them on the podcast. If you're listening, guys from Remember the Wild. Yes, Remember the Wild. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, and they seem to be all about this idea that we've essentially forgotten the wild and it's more than just a conservation thing. It's actually a human health and well-being Oh, I can absolutely attest to that, James, because Mm. moving to Kulatai and spending every day in the bush for, you know, whatever portion of time has significantly helped with my mental health Mm. symptoms and um you know there's this idea of course nature's good for you but uh unless you spend time in nature on a regular basis you Mm. don't actually get to experience the benefits and there's quite a lot of research happening around the world that's looking to quantify Mm. nature's effects on physical and mental health yeah the japanese are the yeah, at the forefront with these, uh, <laughs> yeah, these forest bathing, Shinrin-yoku. Mm. I thought it was just like some hippie idea. It's like, no, the, the Japanese government have invested millions of dollars yeah. into these forest bathing centers. And, you know, the people, when they, when they do this, do this therapy, they, at the beginning, they get like, uh, certain, Blood tests. Blood tests. They get, I don't know. I, I don't really know, know what the mm. scans are, but they, they get their biometrics tested beforehand and then afterwards and then a mm. follow-up to see actually what the physiological response yeah. is to spending time in nature. I think Japan is, as, as much as a concrete jungle as it is, I think they're actually quite good at recognising that, probably because they've gone so far in the other direction. Mm. I don't know if you've ever spent time in Japan, but... Oh, um, my, my sister lived there for yeah. 18 years. So I, I haven't been there, but... I've, know a lot about it one thing I took away from it is right in the middle of Tokyo you will turn a corner and walk into a garden or something that is this strangely secluded patch of green that is all of a sudden quiet and still Mm. and serene and it's it's very intentional they make it that way and I think I almost wonder if they've just sort of done it by instinct for the the citizens of that area because if you didn't have that you just wouldn't survive in a place no, like I, Tokyo yeah. I think it's definitely incredibly important to, to spend time in the bush and if maybe Australians take it for granted because we have so much of it yeah, I don't know even, I don't know. even a city like Sydney it's as far as cities go it's pretty green mm. yeah. And but there are there are definitely you know, I mean the, the trees help ameliorate things like the heat island effect and mm. They've done sociological studies in areas with lots of greenery have a lot less crime than areas without. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> health outcomes and you know, but then you have to attest that to whether that's um, standard of living or socioeconomic factors and things. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things like that. But I mean, at the end of the day, as I always like to say, we're we are an ecosystem ourselves mm. in an ecosystem, and politically, that's. You know, there seems to be this thing that anything to do with ecology or the environment is it's like, oh, you know, you push that away. Mm. Um, whereas that's a, I think that's a really, really dangerous path to go down for so many reasons. Um, I, I, I really worry about the alienation 
of the Australian population away from nature, mm. and that's that's one of the reasons why for, for me these books are important. And the and the the school safari program. We're going to primary schools, and Alex does these amazing. Uh, Photographic. Photographic slideshow presentations, incorporating the poetry into it, and then we take the kids into the into the bush if there's any bush around the school. Well, yeah, the well, you know, into the playground and just to meet what critters are are around. Because even you know, even in in uh, a playground which doesn't actually have a lot of vegetation, you'll still find mud wasps' nests and mm. and spiders' webs and you know little fence skinks running around on the brickwork and. There'll be, you know, there's usually a couple of trees and you can point out there animals that are using the bark and mm. and the birds that are visiting them and just try to spark a little bit of interest. Well, it's probably more important than saying, oh, there's all these amazing stuff out in the wilderness somewhere. Yeah. If you can make a tangible connection between a kid and their backyard. Yeah, you don't have to drive mm. hundreds of kilometres to see cool things. Yeah. you just got to... Go out at night with a torch. Go out at night with a torch <laughs> in your backyard. <laughs> But and 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 there's never been an easier time to learn about wildlife. I think with the amount of apps, the amount of Facebook pages are identification. So it, it, it's interesting that that on the one hand children are less spending time outside, but on the other hand, there's never been a, an easier like a, a nature, a, a learning about nature has never been easier, mm. more easily access accessible. There's more gateways. Yeah, that's, so, that's yeah. yes, true. but. Trying yeah. to get those people to go through those gateways is the. <laughs> so I think that's what the poetry in the books is about: trying to just get people just engaged, get people engaged mm. to connect. It's so it's so incredibly important because if if you get, I mean, I know from my own experience. Like I, I grew up with Gerald Durrell books. <laughs> um, you know, I read my first Gerald Durrell book. I think when I was in kindergarten. Um, and I think one of the reasons I was reading Gerald Durrell books in kindergarten when my classmates were reading See Spot Run, Run Spot Run mm. is because I was introduced to poetry um, and reading at a very, very early age. And I think you can... It's never too early to start reading to kids. We've had a f- feedback from people of like, oh, this is a bit too advanced yeah. mm. for, you know... Whatever Whatever age. age. But we really don't like that talking down to mm. kids. Well, how, how did you pick the poems for the book? Did you <laughs> well, have was, a big collection? Well, initially, it was, it was, okay, what... It was about the photographs, really. Okay. <laughs> they're all your own photographs. They're all, yeah. they're all yeah, around they're all around photographs. So it was like, what poem... Do you have a, pho- do you have a book-worthy photograph for this poem? <laughs> so there was plenty of poems that weren't included in the book, but it was all about the photograph. Mm. And um, sometimes it worked the other way. Like, I'd have a really cool photo, and I'd think, oh, I should write a poem about this. Mm. But um, yeah, and some of them are, were topical. So, for example, the the fruit bat poem that mm-hmm. uh, Jane and I wrote. Um, yeah, I wrote. I, I wanted to write a poem about fruit bats because our local council <laughs> cut down a whole the, bunch of a whole trees. bunch of trees that the these mega bats were roosting in. Mm. Uh, they cut them down at night while they're out foraging, and that was their solution to the bat problem in town. <laughs> Just cut down the trees, and that really disturbed me because mm. people don't understand that they're really important pollinators and, for, and seed dispersal. They can fly up to what I think like hundred kilometers. Mm. Don't quote me on that, but yeah, huge distances. Yeah, they fly. They fly a long way, and you, you know they're such important pollinators, and, and they're really susceptible to 
Like climate heat wave, change. climate change. Like, you know, there was a little reds, there was a couple hundred thousand died in one day. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. trying to get people to love... The unlovable. The unlovable. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we like to include things. things. like March flies and death animals yeah. and assassin bugs. Velvet worms. <laughs> things that people have never heard of. Yeah. The general public. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. So you've got your poems, you've got your photos... Did you know what you were doing when you no. made your first book? <laughs> no, Did, no, we definitely didn't know what we were doing when we wrote our, our first book. Yeah. No, which is why we're, we're, we're doing a reprint, because we didn't know to get a cellar glaze cover, and the, the cover is actually susceptible to being damaged. Oh, okay. Yeah, quite easily. We were newbies. So, so we're doing a reprint of this, so um, yeah, we're not quite sure what we're going to do with the, uh, the few thousand of these we've got left. We might... <laughs> Well, we've almost sold out. Actually, we certainly don't. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we, we're probably going to send them off to um, schools and give them away as prizes and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, we couldn't have done it without a, a friend of ours, um, Greg Wallace, who's the graphic designer. But he's also a photographer and a... And, an, and a zoologist. And a zoologist, so that was handy. And he handy used to too. be my boss when I worked as a tour guide in Kakadu. Way back <laughs> so he did the graphics <laughs> for the first one, and I did most of the graphics for the second for one. The but we're more knowledgeable about the book game. Yes. <laughs> but we, we're, we're self-published, and I think we'll continue to be self-published because we really want to... <laughs> make money. We'll make money. <laughs> and really, it's, it's, it's... But not just that. It's that if you, if you pick up any book, most of the books are printed in China. Mm. And we're not cool with that. <laughs> we're, you know, we, 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 our books are about trying to educate people and get them to Keeping it care. local and... Keeping it well, local. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, they're forest-certified recycled paper and mm. all that sort of thing. So having, having that... You know, Australian connection, I think, is... It is makes important. the printing cost more expensive, but it makes, I think, you know... Ethically, I feel better about it. My, my, my guess is you're not necessarily... This isn't your get-rich-quick plan. You're not oh. doing this for profit, necessarily. <laughs> no, not necessarily, but it has actually been... <laughs> profitable. It has actually been profitable, which wow. is really surprising. Well, the only... Yeah. So the only author that I... Well, I wouldn't say I'm friends with Jackie French, but she 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 she's been she's very supportive, very supportive, and she said if you can remain self-published, stay self-published because yeah. it's the only way to make money. Unless you're a well-established author like Jackie French, do you know who Jackie French is? Yeah, I haven't read any of her stuff, but yes, yeah, she's, she's prolific. She's yeah. Australia's most prolific children's author. Mm. Um, but we've all, you know, it's not the main source of income, but it is an income, and it. Personally, it's provided me with a huge amount of uh, purpose. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I do all the marketing, I do the website, the social media, and and all that jazz. I take the photos. Alex is kind of the talent. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the brains still, and the brawn. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the fact that we don't have debt, etc., means that it's something that can slowly... Mm. build and um you know because you are a zoologist like we can get into schools the thing about being an author it's it's like a gateway into schools really that's true yeah you know so we're planning to do an author tour this year oh and tour uh, yeah where are you going 
What's the play? <laughs> well, our, our, latest, our latest book, Fauna vs. Wildlife and Poetry Tasmania, is all mm-hmm. about... It's all Tasmanian animals. A lot of them are endemic and some of them are not. And every summer, Alex works as a discovery ranger in Tasmania for Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife. So I think we'll go to Tasmania earlier and, and before the school year ends and... Visit and visit schools. Alright. Yeah, because with the first book, after the day that it was published, we had um, Lee from from Guimac Landcare go, oh my god, do you want a grant to go into primary schools in the region? <laughs> Not yes. We basically had money thrown at us from the mm. beginning to, to create a school safari program. And then when our other friend did the um, Shelley from which Northwest Slopes. Northwest Slopes Landcare found out that we were doing a school safari tour. <laughs> yeah, she said, oh. Oh, my God, do you want a grant to go to the... Yeah. So we, we went to 14... Different schools? schools. Yeah. And, and that- what was interesting about that, it um, out of the 200 or so students, or more, I don't even remember how many there were, not one knew what an antikinus was. Oh. And that was like, wow, okay, this is... They knew what a shrew they was. They knew what a shrew was. Oh. But they didn't know what an antichinus was. So for people who might be listening to the podcast that don't know what an antichinus is. An antichinus is a, a small relative of the Tasmanian devil. It's a, um, a little carnivorous marsupial. Um, in most species, the males... Yes, they're famous for shagging themselves to death every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but they're absolutely delightful creatures, and, and it's quite noble, I guess that he shags himself to death because it means if you, if you imagine you know you've got a nuclear family mum dad and two kids and you've got a packet of Tim Tams in the fridge um, how many Tim Tams how many more Tim Tams will the family get if the, if the father's out of the way it's <laughs> a good way of putting it yeah. so basically he's he's you know he's letting his offspring have more um Nutrition. nutrition. Mm. <laughs> so I think, well, f- f- I've noticed a lack of... Well, when I was growing up, uh, Totally Wild was yeah. the show that you'd raise home from school to see and it was all about Australian wildlife. I'm not sure if that has been replaced. I know there's great shows like The Deadly 60, mm. but they're, they're not specifically Australian. Unfortunately. I haven't had a television since 1988, so I don't know. <laughs> you can't talk to this. <laughs> but then I even went online and looked if there was, like, YouTubers doing um, interests with wildlife and there stuff. There are a few, yeah, there are a few good YouTubers out there, but the podcasts, like, in situ science, are <laughs> a great way to learn about yeah. all of this stuff. I mean, the po- poetry isn't specifically aimed at kids, but that's kind of just how it's easy to market that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's aimed at the parents of children. And the grandparents. And the grandparents. Well. It's sort of like, <laughs> you know. And teachers and tour guides and, yeah, all sorts of people. It's amazing, though. Once you do something like this, you take the step to put yourself out there and create something and show it to the world that... Other things happen. It's true. You know, like people reach out and offer you money and to do things. And if you would just sat there and waiting nothing. for someone, some some book publisher to say, "Hey, would you want to write a book about animals?" Yeah, no, nothing <laughs> would ever happen. Yeah, well, and for me, it was like, how can I personally contribute to conservation? Yes, I can give money to organisations like Bush Heritage or AWC, etc. But I wanted. To- I wanted to do more, and I'm like, okay, I'm an I'm an uneducated, (laughs) 
unemployed, mentally ill person, what can I do? Uh, books. I can write books. Mm. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's and it's been it's been absolutely fantastic for Jane as well mm. to to have that purpose and it was one of the one of the things that contributed to her getting well. It was definitely spending time in nature, but it was it was it was actually poo. It was actually poo, James. <laughs> All right, go on. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Um, well, firstly, I've got to say that I wouldn't even call myself mentally ill anymore. I've, I've, I've been in remission for two years. No, and I'm not even said medicated. It a couple of times yeah. since I met you, and I wouldn't know what you're talking it's about. It's a big deal. So, so anyway, explain when, how it happened. When, when I met did. Jane, she did tell me that she had bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anyone with bipolar disorder. I had no idea what bipolar disorder actually meant. I'm I thought it meant that because I don't know why you would have been. Yeah, it's kind of cool though. Move in with me. <laughs> Um, and uh, I knew it involved depression and sort of elevated moods, but uh, yeah, the, the the depth of depression, the inability to get joy from anything. I was functionally disabled yeah. for eighteen mm. years, basically, which which meant that I was sick freak, so frequently. My whole life was spent being sick. There was not, you know, I, I have worked, but I, every job I ever had, I've lost because of my illness you know i think the, the longest i ever worked in a job was maybe a year or a year and a half before i got sick and then i got worse as i got older and yeah i was just basically i was i was disabled i couldn't yeah. so I, I, yeah i basically became james carer, uh, carer. Mm. and the first time that I saw her um, manic. Um, it was absolutely horrifying. I'd been away doing a frog survey down um, on the coast and uh, I've been getting these texts from Jane and they've been getting weirder and weirder and weirder and I was uh, mm. getting more and more concerned. And I came back and she was like basically wandering around the yard in bare feet. Was I naked? No, you weren't naked, surprisingly enough, but oh, yeah, your feet were time. absolutely full of um, khaki burrs. And you were catatonic, so I'm trying to talk to her, and she was looking right through me and then laughing hysterically. I and wasn't was, there. I was uh, I was in a galaxy yeah, far, this. far away yes. with my alien buddies. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, so and one of you was having a great time. I was having a great time. Yeah, I was <laughs> incredibly disturbed. And anyway, so that was, that was the to, first of about three times yeah. that I took that you to hospital for mania. Mm. And I had no idea what was going on. It was uh, absolutely horrible experience mm. so for anyone who doesn't know what bipolar what bipolar one disorder was my diagnosis it's 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 um typically someone with bipolar disorder has uh severe depression with uh, with mania with ext- you know where you lose touch with reality and mm. mania is just as depressed is dangerous as depression is depression you know the danger is that you was suicidal and mm. suicide. The, the danger of mania is that because you are disconnected with reality, whatever you think is real. So, for example, if you think you can fly, mm. people might jump off a building, which has happened, mm. and because you can fly. So, or when I was trying to take you to hospital, and you thought we were in some weird vehicle, and you put the car into a second gear at a hundred kilometres an hour. <laughs> We can laugh now. We can laugh now. So anyway, so my life was very limited. I couldn't work. I couldn't study. I couldn't function. I couldn't plan ahead because uh, I was sick. And and 
the level of suffering was incredible. great. It was incredible. Mm. So we'd have a lovely day like today. We'd be sitting on the swing seat looking out at the, the countryside and Jane would just be crying mm. because you know, she was so so ridiculously unhappy and I was I would say I was treatment resistant medication only stopped me from killing myself basically but it gave me no quality of life and I had already at this stage already lived 18 years like this and the prospect of living another 50 years with this illness just horrified me so the medication was antipsychotics or just yeah antipsychotics and oh lithium mood stabilizers and Mm. uh you know a medication to stop me being depressed, a medication to stop me getting too manic, and if I got manic, then antipsychotic mm. medications, which have terrible side effects and everything. So anyway, Alex? Well, I'd read a paper somewhere, I can't remember where, mm. about rats that had depressive symptoms being given the fecal mice. material. It might have been mice. It was some rodent. Germ-free mice. <laughs> something in a lab, yeah. Yeah, something yeah. in a lab where a depressed person's poo was put into a... A jam-free mouse, and they ex- start exhibiting depression, depression, depressive-like behaviours, etc. And then, like the poo from a healthy mouse, mouse or a person into a depressed mouse, it stopped them being depressed. Yeah. And so, so, I'd read that, and I was desperate. Mm. There were no human trials or studies at that time, but because we do all our medical research on. We do our mammals for a reason. You yeah, know, the models for, for a reason. It didn't seem like a huge leap that it could potentially work in me. Um, and this was in 2016. And so when you put the idea towards me, to me, I was like, you want to do what? <laughs> so have there these studies there? They're not transferring poop, though, are they? They're, yeah. Yes. Or, or they they're are. not they straight poop, not just the bacterial... Well, they're oh, basically, well, they, they're basically they... It's a fecal transplant. It's a fecal transplant. Fecal are they transplanting the feces though? Or are they isolating the? No, they're not no, isolating they're, no, the bacteria. Transparent... Oh, yeah. So you basically, poo in a blender, strained, mixed with saline. Well, I don't know how complicated it is in a lab setting. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, so this so, was an idea. <laughs> so this was an idea with with not no human I, data. I just wanted to take the edge off a of depression. Mm. I I loved Jane then as I love her now. And I hated seeing her, her suffering to the extent that she was. So I thought, okay, I'm healthy. I don't have any nasty diseases or anything like that. Um, I'm not going to... So so fecal transplants, they're... they're <sighs> they were used for... In, in Australia, they're, it's... it's Clostridium difficile. Yeah, it's medically approved for a condition called Clostridium difficile, which is a real highly aggressive... Bacterial overgrowth of the large intestine. Which I've had. Oh, have oh, you really? Not good. No. Oh gosh. <laughs> and so, fecal transplants have shown to have something like a. I was at ninety percent success yeah, it's rate. It's really, really, really high success rate mm. to treat Clostridium difficile, as opposed to the crazy harsh antibiotics that they normally give. Is they got my. Had? They got mine early enough. That they got yours early enough. Done with targeted antibiotics. Yeah. You were lucky. <laughs> You were really well, lucky because know, it does kill people. Yeah, I didn't know that at the time. Oh, <laughs> man. Like, thousands <laughs> of people died from that. Months later. I, this is, I got it from... I got food poisoning and went into hospital and from a Thai hospital got a, this strange antibacterial-resistant uh, superbug oh, no. that some doctor said, oh, it's this thing called Clostridium difficile. Oh, that's nice. He gave me this targeted antibiotic, so I was fine. And then months later, uh, someone came to the university I was at to do a seminar 
on this superbug. I thought I'll go along, find out about this thing that I just had, and then stats they had of how many people died from this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. So glad I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. I would have been freaking out. I just thought I'd had some strange infection and well, so because because fecal, fecal transplants have been shown to be safe, yeah, um, it, it's all about the donor. You know, there it's 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 a dangerous thing to do to to do a fecal transplant if you if you if your donor isn't screened and safe and because you're literally transplanting transplanting their like a whole ecosystem. Yeah, <laughs> and if you know if they've got viruses or parasites or even like autoimmune disease or we're not or obesity or obesity all the latest research into the gut microbiome is showing there's a whole range of diseases that the gut microbiome seem to be involved in so did you know these risks we did we did we did did. did. and we we met you know so alex was actually called a psychiatrist well yeah Mm. because i I don't think we would have done it if i didn't have my psychiatrist's thumbs up so i called i called dr hinton and just kind of gauged all i said was so dr hinton what do you think about fecal transplants and mental illness he goes oh jane it's the medicine of the future i'll be out of a job in 20 years and 20 years i'll be able to analyze your gut microbiome and see what species you're missing and give you a tailored probiotic or a fecal Mm. transplant and all your symptoms will go away why do you ask uh, like, this guy is actually quite ahead of the game. We're mm. quite lucky. Yeah, and I was like, wow, we're thinking of doing this at home for my bipolar symptoms. And anyway, so we started doing it. We didn't know if it would work. And at the time, there wasn't any, there wasn't a huge amount of research. But within three months, I started, my symptoms started to decline. Within six months, I was completely symptom-free. Within nine months, I was able to go off all medication. And I've now not experienced depression for two years or mania for 19 months and it's unprecedented and now there's funnily enough like halfway through our poo experiment a clinical trial started in canada treating bipolar disorder with fecal transplant so even though n equals one i'm just one person we're poo and ears we're poo and ears there (laughs) there'll be the newspaper headline (laughs) there'll be um data is on the way and um, and there's actually going to be a clinical trial in Australia treating major depressive disorder with crapsules. <laughs> is this another word you've come up with? No, no, no. no. <laughs> no we haven't come up with that. This is what the researchers are calling crapsules. Okay. It's, it's poop pills. All right. Yeah. So we spoke to very early on in the podcast days. I spoke to Heather Hendrickson, Gal and Gal Winter. Isn't it? Yeah. So Heather is a, over in New Zealand, a microbiologist, uh-huh. talking about this stuff. And the way she was describing it to me is that the capsules, capsules, the capsules <laughs> don't have fecal matter in them, but they have the bacterial colonies. They're able to isolate the bacteria from everything else, and so it's essentially getting a little probiotic. Yeah. And that way. Well, because they don't... I don't know. I think they're actually using poop... Because they, they they don't know the mechanism. They don't know if it's the... Like, the metabolites of these mm. bacteria mm. seem to be... It's a, this is a whole new field of biology. Yeah. Like, this, is, this is, like... I mean, if I mean, you, you understand ecology, you know that... Mm. Identifying what organisms live in the landscape is one thing. But then trying to work out their interactions with one another... Mm is completely different and yeah. so you, you you transfer that you know we've got trillions well, of these damn things in our guts. in the clinical trial in in canada treating bipolar it is a it's a it's a poo transplant it's the it's the fecal matter from a donor mm. via an enema 
Yeah. Mm. So, so anyway. <laughs> Hopefully it'll work because it worked for us. <laughs> well, with, with your end of, end of one, have you been able to reach out to these oh, yeah. people and are they, they interested in hearing your story? Oh, they're so interested. And unfortunately, we, we weren't very scientific about it. We didn't get... <laughs> Taking a lot of notes? No, well, we didn't get, uh, we didn't get my poo. I, I didn't... All, all the researchers that I've contacted who are in this field are like, wow, this is amazing. This is what we're hoping to see in clinical trials. Did you get your poo analysed mm. during the process? No. Ah, oh, damn. But um, still, my case study has been like a, my case study has just been used in a in a ethics approval application for a clinical trial. So mm. my story's out there, and researchers are very interested. Like no one's gone, oh, this is this is crazy mm. talk. Apart from other bipolar people. Yeah, but um, like the gut brain axis and mental illness is. It's very well it's established. Well, very well yeah. established, but now it's you know how do we we how do we targeting the gut microbiome for treatment mm. is very early days. And nutritional psychiatry, like treat, using diet into interventions, is really early days. But um, my psychiatrist is going to write my case study up in, so it will be in a journal, mm. etc. But um, but yeah, researchers are very excited. Like I got interviewed for in conjunction with the trial on Canadian TV, and this I won't. These researchers in Australia, they want me to do um, media in conjunction with the trial when it happens. They haven't started recruiting yet. They're still going through ethics approval stage. Mm. But, you know, it's nice to know that even though I'm just an anecdotal story, it's yeah. I can contribute <laughs> to this research. No, Jane, through this, Alex, you can vouch for the changes you I see. can. It, it is, seriously, if I was a religious man, I would say it was a miracle. <laughs> well, I have my friend go, how do you know it's not a placebo? <laughs> Even if it is, it works. Well, I mean, can you placebo your way out of... Serious mental this is illness. Two, maybe six months, but this is, oh, this is over two years mm. now, and I'm not medicated, and I'm still well, and I keep, and I'm still getting better, and it was definitely... Nothing else changed except I've now got a different gut microbiome ecosystem. So, as you mentioned, we also spoke to Gal Winter yeah. and also Mandy Hangstrom on the podcast that were both doing research into microbiomes and the link with either depression and also exercise, whether exercise yeah. can actually improve microbiomes. And it's one of those, yeah, you're right, it's a very promising new area of science, but it's kind of the Wild West because there's these definite links between these two things, what on earth it is. Uh, that's the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it comes back down to ecosystems. But, yeah. but now that there's enough kind of um, animal data that has now, that, that, that is sufficient evidence to prompt human trials, and the more human trials there are, the, you know, it's got to go through, get the data peer-reviewed, see what the results are, etc. But it's just an accumulation over time, and it's just leading to more research. And even... Like Professor Felice Jacker from the Food and Mood Center out of Deakin, she's shown she's shown a definite link between um, diet mm. and mental health outcomes. I imagine one of the big hurdles to getting this field advancing is the sort of PR around it. Well, mm. getting funding, like the, the Food and Mood Center, that you know she's really struggling. Struggled, struggled to get funding because she was, um, you know diet and mental illness it was kind mm. of like whatever that's hippie talk yeah but yeah. She, she's an epidemiologist and she went through these like huge huge studies and d- there was clear links between diet diet and mental health outcomes etc well here's my idea yeah 
<laughs> a, if you will, a poetry book. A poetry book! As a gateway to people understanding microbiomes and. That's a cool stuff. idea, actually. We do have some some poems about poo, like your wombat poo poem is quite famous. And have you heard of there's a poozeum in Tasmania? No. <laughs> the poozeum, it's fantastic. It's all about poo and how great it is. And yeah, it's uh, it's well worth worthwhile. She wants us to do. She like us to do a poo poo poem. <laughs> Well, I mean, I've, I've actually I have written poo poems. I can't, I can't, I can't remember. Can he, can he, can he recite his wombat poo poem? Please, yes. Well, <laughs> one of the one of the things about wombats yeah. is is that they don't normally come out in the middle of the day, whereas people who visit Tasmania usually do come out in the middle of the day. Yeah, and people want Cradle Mountain especially. Yeah, Cradle Valley. Yeah, and people wandering around Cradle Valley always see their droppings, and their droppings are often stacked on things and cubic, and people are like, what did this? So I created a poem. I tripped amongst the rounded hills and walked through button grass. Scenery surrounded me, and many peaks I passed. I stopped a while to rest my bones upon a fallen tree, and as I checked the ground around, a strange sight did I see. Upon a log beside my foot, a puzzling sculpture stood, five green cubes of fibrous content balanced on the wood. What strange beast had passed this way and left these decorations? A nearby ripping, crunching noise disturbed my ruminations. I turned about with trembling heart, not knowing what I'd see, and there I saw a wombat looking quizzically at me. It looked a friendly creature. Its eyes were small and bright. Hello there, the wombat said. I nearly died of fright. I wasn't too familiar with marsupials that spoke. I always thought of wombats were a silent sort of folk. Those droppings there, I pointed. To what do they belong? Those? They're mine, the wombat said. Haven't been there long. But why are they stacked up like that? I plonked them on a log. That seems a lot of effort to spend going to the bog. Finally, the wombat spoke. I guess that you should know. More than nature's gentle urgings determine where we go. That artifice, that sculpture, that well-constructed pile identifies this place as mine with its distinctive style. The size of each cube segment and their placement tells a story. Any wombat seeing this knows they're in my territory. Ah, I said, I understand your message etched in faeces, but does that sculpted scat apply to any other species? Don't worry, mate, the wombat said. You're not a threat to me. I'll see you around. I'll have to get some sedges for my tea. But that, the wombat trundled off, left me to contemplate... Round objects roll, but cube ones don't, not in their natural state. Next time you see those cube-shaped droppings, don't sneer with derision. They're the faecal art of wombats, deposits of precision. <laughs> For people listening, that was recited totally from memory. Oh, he stays recited super many times. <laughs> it's a much better explanation for, for poo morphology than the old joke about why your poo's tapered. Yeah. Oh, you know that one? Why your poo's tapered? So your yeah. bum doesn't shut with a bang? <laughs> why? That's it, so your arse doesn't slam shut. <laughs> well, actually, that's in the devil poo poem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> the last line of that is um, uh, tapered, so it's sphincter doesn't. doesn't Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. it's in there. It's in the book. <laughs> but we, that's our. I made. I also. I turned our video. Sorry, I turned our poems into into videos, and that the wombat poo poem, poem wombat droppings, actually got shortlisted for a 
Cradle Mountain Film Festival. Oh. Instantly. <laughs> That's great. Which was very cool. <laughs> so I was very happy with that. Well, if people are interested in getting one of these books, where where can they go? Um, the best best place to go is uh, through our website, fauniverse.com.au. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're in shops. As well. Like, you know, they're in quite a lot of shops as well. I don't, couldn't name them. <laughs> <laughs> the Tasmanian one's in just about all, you know, a lot of Tasmanian bookshops and a lot of Tasmanian park shops. But our website's like the best place yeah, to web- order them. And, and on our website, there's also all the video poems that I've created, mm-hmm. which are very cool. And some of Jane's songs. As some well. of my songs. And information about your school visits and all yeah, that stuff. We yeah. want to come to your school. It's <laughs> <laughs> just fauniverse.com.au. Yeah. Yeah. And you're on Twitter and Facebook and everything. Well, we are, but I'm ma- we're mainly on Facebook. We're, yeah. we're on Twitter and Instagram and all that. But it's mainly Facebook. At Fauniverse. We'll, we'll you just look for Fauniverse. Right we're the only yeah, Fauniverse. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I should probably hit the road. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah. No worries. Jane, would you like to take us out with a poem? Ah, uh, I would. I wonder what, which one do you think I should read, Alex? It should be one that I've written. <laughs> Probably. One from the Tassie book? Or? I know. I'll do the Tasmanian Patermelons because I found myself taking them for granted. Oh. In, you know, when we go spotlighting in Tasmania, and be like, oh, I want to see an Eastern Bike Bandicoot or something. And it's like, oh, there's another Patermelon. And I've, I felt myself taking them for granted. And so I thought I'd better write this poem so that, that people don't take them for granted. Tasmania has animals, both big and small, with snakes that can slither and spiders that crawl, with platypus swimming that hunt in a stream and possums awake while the rest of us dream. Some of Tassie's fauna are quite hard, to, quite hard to see. They live in the ocean or high in a tree. They're rare or endangered or just very shy, or they're well camouflaged and you simply walk by. But the Tasmanian patamelon won't let you down if your hunt for a devil results in a frown or you spotlight for quolls and it offers no yield in the Valley of Cradle or the Park of Mount Field. It's easy to find them. Just go to a park and look through the forest and wait until dark and you'll see small wallabies slowly emerge from the safety of cover out into the verge where they'll graze on the grass and marsupial lawn where they'll forage all night from dusk until dawn. While feeding in the open, they stay quite alert as they're wary of predators and don't want to be hurt. But every night, upon our roads, they're accidentally hit, which could easily be avoided if we just slowed down a bit. In Tasmania, they're abundant. On the mainland, they're extinct. The rapid rise of foxes and extinction could be linked. Although they're really common now, this may not always be, so perhaps we should appreciate this rufous wallaby. Thank you.